If you have a Bible, uh, you can open it to 1 Timothy chapter number 3. 1 Timothy chapter number 3. Uh, we have moved in in our Bible reading time. By the way, if you're, if you're new or new or for the first time in a long time, that kind of thing, uh, we have a Bible reading plan uh, that we are walking through this year. We're reading through the New Testament together as a church. And on our midweek times, we take a portion of some of the things we've been reading and we just spend a little bit of time uh, in that reading together uh, during our midweek time. So it, it's always um, a good time of Bible study, uh, at least in my opinion. I was joking earlier with somebody. Anytime I preach somewhere and Kayla asked me how it went, I always tell her, well, for me, it went good. So I guess it was all right. I don't know about anybody else, but I thought it was great, you know. So uh, anyway, I enjoy our time uh, together on Wednesday nights. And so we've been reading uh, through 1 Timothy. We have finished 1 Timothy. We're into 2 Timothy and soon to be into Titus. And then uh, I think the Gospel of John and some other readings coming up. But uh, before we move into uh, some, some other studies, as a matter of fact, because we're going through John on Sunday mornings, it, it seems a little strange for me to do that again on Wednesday nights. And so I think what what I've decided to do is I want us to do a full study of the letter of 2 Timothy. So I'm looking forward to us going through that book together during our midweek time until we get through the readings of John. I know that sounds weird, but we're doing that on Sunday, so it would be a little repetitive. Although it would save me a few sermons because I would write them, you know, for, and then... Anyway, uh, I thought we'd go through 2 Timothy together, which, which I'm excited about. 2 Timothy is, is certainly uh, is, is my favorite book in all of the Bible. I feel like I say that, by the way, about every book we do. But, but seriously, 2 Timothy is my favorite. And so I'm looking forward to us studying through that. But before we go to some of those things, I wanted to spend some time in 1 Timothy, in particular, uh, with the topic of uh, deacons. And so there, there's a couple reasons why I think this is beneficial to us. First of all, it, it's in the Bible and it's here at our church, so like that makes sense. Um, but we've we just read about this in 1 Timothy, so it seems to be a little bit more relevant in the sense that if you're reading our Bible uh, reading plan together, you have just read over the qualifications for elders and the qualifications for deacons. Um, also, I, I think it's a little bit, uh, in particular, a little more relevant right now, too, because our current deacons right now um, have been in, I guess, I don't know if it's been a year. It feels like it's been a year. I guess it's been a little less than a year, but we've been through a process now of updating our deacon manual here, and so that's been a, a, a fun, challenging, intense kind of time. I, I won't speak for the deacons uh, that are in the room, but I've enjoyed our conversations and wrestling with Scripture and um, trying to be true uh, to what God has called us to do, um, and then also, another reason why I think it's just significant for us to look at is because we'll be electing deacons here at our church um, pretty soon. So uh, I, I want us to discuss uh, deacon ministry. And in order to do that, I wanted to share just a couple of my favorite stories about the ministry of deacons from the past. Now, this may not be that impressive to you or you may not care that much. But since I have the microphone, obviously, I get to do it. But there are two stories that, uh, you know, or, or accounts of deacons from the the past that have always stood out to me. The first one's a story that's shared by an early church father. His name is Ambrose of Milan, but he shares a story about deacons that I think is interesting. We got to travel back to ancient Rome, the epicenter of the mightiest empire on earth. Only eight years have passed since Emperor Decius sought to exterminate all who, who refused to pledge allegiance to his sovereign rule. Now, this is common, obviously, in the Roman Empire. Untold Christians were killed. It's now AD 258, and a man named Lawrence is one of seven deacons serving in Rome. Now, his particular task as a deacon was this 
He was to oversee the church's money and distributions to the poor. In August, the news hit, Decius's successor, Decius's, that's difficult, by the way, his successor, a guy by the name of Valerian, you may have studied about him in, uh, in, in, in Roman history. Anyway, uh, at this point in time, uh, the, the, the new ruler, Valerian, has issued a chilling edict. Here's the edict. All bishops, priests, and deacons must be rounded up and killed. So that is the, the, the rule that has now been put forward with the new emperor, uh, Valerian. Now, Lawrence is soon taken before the magistrate. The offer is this. Surrender the treasure of the church and you will be freed. That's the, that's the you know, ultimatum there. The deacon agrees. Lawrence is like, all right. He only requests three days to retrieve the treasure of the church. So leaving the court, Lawrence wastes no time. He entrusts the church's money to safe hands, and then he gathers together the sick, the aged, the poor, the widowed, and the orphaned. At last, he returns to the court, pitiful band in tow. Incensed by the commotion, the magistrate demands an explanation. And so here is Lawrence's reply as he brings in all of these folks with him. He responds, sir, I have brought you what you asked for. Then gesturing toward the people he's gathered, he declares, these are the treasures of the church. Subsequently, sentenced to a martyr's death, the deacon endures the flames with startling calm, even quipping to his executioners, you may turn me over, I am done on this side. So he's it's getting well done, right? <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but funny. The spectacle of Lawrence's profound courage makes a great impression on the people of Rome, leading to many conversions. Now, that's one example of a deacon from the past. I want to give you another example. This one's from an article titled Martyrdom of Habab, the Deacon. Fast forward 70 years from the moment that Lawrence was killed, and we're going to journey to southeast Telziha. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's how we're going to say it. It's in modern-day Turkey now. Persecution against Christians has again intensified, this time under Licinius. New emperor, new edict. Here's the new edict. Citizens must repair the altars and sacrifice to the god Jupiter. What happens? A deacon rises up. His name is Habib. Habib was of the village of Telziha and had made uh, a deacon uh, at, at, at that village, at that church, and he went secretly into the churches in the villages. He ministered and read the scriptures. He encouraged and strengthened many by his words and admonished them to stand fast in the truth of their belief and to not be afraid of the persecutors. Many were strengthened by his words and were careful not to renounce the covenant they had made to Jesus. Now, when the men appointed with reference to this particular matter heard of it, they informed the governor of the town of Edessa. Habib, who is a deacon in the village of Telziha, goes about and ministers secretly in every place and resists the command of the emperors and is not afraid. Not afraid. Indeed, enduring a barrage of questions from the governor without wavering in his faith, Habab is burned at the stake. These are two of my favorite deacon ministry stories from the past, right? Neither one of them sound like they end very well. 
Not exactly how we would want our life to end, do you agree? Yet these guys had an incredible impact on their communities and their world and churches and deacon ministry forever. You say, Danny, why in the world would you share these stories to us? Well, here's why. What a picture of deacon ministry on the church and community. What a picture of the impact they have on those places. What more do we need for the validity of deacons than these stories? Any church, by the way, with these types of deacons, do you know what happens? They change the world. Never tell me deacons are not essential to the local church. Deacon ministry is extremely relevant to all of us because God ordained deacon ministry in the church. And, by the way, because God ordained deacon ministry in this church. So tonight, here's what I want to do very quickly. I want us to have a lot of discussions, and I want us to answer a few questions about deacon ministry in the church. We're going to go two places. We're going to spend a brief moment in Acts chapter 6, and then we're going to spend the majority of our time in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is something that we read more recently. So here's question number one. What are deacons? What are they? Danny, okay, deacons are essential, gotcha. Man, the impact of those guys from the past, that's incredible. Okay, it's relevant to us. God said we should have them in the church. We should have them in this church. All right, got it. They, they're a big deal. Danny, what are they? Well, church history-wise, maybe they were not called deacons at the time, but we conclude that the first deacons are found in Acts chapter 6. Now, I'm not going to preach this text. I'm even not even going to read all of it to you, and here's the reason why. One, we don't have enough time tonight, and two, I've preached on Acts chapter 6 on multiple occasions. So listen, a little plug here. If you go to our website, look under sermons, go and find those. You can listen to them anytime you would like. I can be in your ear all day long, all right? So anyway, uh, shameless plug there. I'm with you, but you can go listen to those if you want. So I don't want to preach it, but I do want to remind you of a few things that were happening in the life of the early church. Acts chapter 2, here's something that we read. Everything's going great with the church, and the Lord was, here's the phrase, adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You move on to Acts chapter 4, everything's still growing, going great with the church. They continued to share with each other and serve each other. It was a beautiful thing. You get to Acts chapter 5, and here's what it says, more than ever believers were added added to the Lord. It's a beautiful scenario in the birth of the early church. And then you get to Acts chapter 6, and you got to put the brakes on for a minute, right? Acts chapter 6, we discover the first complaint in the early church. I'm not going to read it, but you can. It's Acts 1 through 6 in particular, where we read about some women in the church who were being neglected. And so because there was such a stir, such commotion, the apostles and the church decided to select a group of men who, by the way, here's how they're described, good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. Those guys would be appointed to the duty of serving those who are being neglected. Here's the actual phrase. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So what do they do? They found a group of guys who stood worthy to serve in that capacity and to be servants of the church. So here's what I would tell you. Deacons, what are they? Deacons are servants of the local 
church. Now between the complaint in verse 1 and God's word continuing to increase and disciples being multiplied was a group of servants holding it all together. They were selected by the apostles and the entire collection of believers in Jerusalem to help care for the outward and physical concerns of the church. They were servants of the local church. One of my favorite quotes about deacons is from a guy named Matt, Matt Smithhurst in a book called Deacons. Matter of fact, there's a quote we'll get to a little bit later that's actually in your notes tonight. But here's one of the things he wrote about deacons that I love. He said, deacons are not the church's spiritual council of directors, nor the executive board to who the staff answers. They are the cavalry of servants deputized to execute the vision of God through the local church by coordinating various ministries. Deacon are like a congregation's special ops force, carrying out unseen assignments with fortitude and joy. Doesn't that sound awesome? That is the description given to deacons by Matt. Now, no wonder the devil wants to disrupt the ministry of deacons. What enemy would not want to destroy our special ops force? As a matter of fact, listen to the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He said, for even the Son of Man, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now the word served in Matthew 10, 45, and the word for serve, served and serve, is the same word that's used in, uh, in, in, the, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for deacons. The verse could literally read like this from Matthew 10, 45. Jesus came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. That's literally how you could translate the verse in Mark chapter 10. So as we explore the ministry of deacons in the Bible and here in our church, I want us to remember that deacons are servants. They are serving or deaconing, by the way, just as Jesus did. They are described in the very same manner as Jesus. So what are deacons? Servants of the local church. Let's look at the second question. Why do we need deacons? All right, Danny, got it. They're servants. Why do we need them? Well, if you continue in Acts chapter 6, after verses 1 through 7, when the first deacons are appointed to their task, I love what happens in verse number 7. Because of deacon ministry, here's what Luke writes in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6, verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Did you hear that? Because of the ministry of deacons, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Now, think about this. Had those deacons not handled the situation properly, could verse 7 have ended in division rather than multiplication of the church? Had the church not decided to appoint men to serve, could the apostles have continued Continued to spread the gospel as they did. I don't think so. As a matter of fact, here's why we need deacons. So that the word of God can continue to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. Look at it. In Saltillo and throughout the world, right? Like that's real to our context. They're needed so that the, the, the number in our church can continue to increase. The number of disciples being multiplied here in Saltillo and throughout the world. If the local church today, right, if FBC Saltillo was like the church in Acts 6, would we not see the same results? By the way, I think we're close. 
Not perfect. Neither were they. We learn that as we continue to read Acts. But we've got an incredible group of men here who desire to serve. Why? So that we can continue to do the ministry that God's planted us here in Saltillo to do here and throughout the world. Charles DeWeese, he's a Christian or, or, or a church historian, he summarizes the roles of deacons in the early church. Listen to how he described them from early church history. It's astounding in my opinion. You ready? He said they visited martyrs who were in prison, clothed and buried the dead, looked after the excommunicated with the hope of restoring them, provided the needs of widows and orphans, and visited the sick and those who were otherwise in distress. In a plaque that struck Alexandria about AD 259, deacons were described by an eyewitness as those who visited the sick fearlessly, ministered to them continually, and died with them most joyfully. That is intense when we think about the ministry of deacons. You say, Danny, I'm not really sure that I've seen deacon ministry handled that way. Well, here's what I'll be honest about. Deacon ministry has changed a lot from that description that we hear from Charles DeWeese. Over the years, deacon ministry has lost some of its biblical meaning. Rather than being men of the word and disciple makers, here's what's happened. Deacons became secretaries to the bishops, the elders, the pastors. They became second-rate, not-as-good leaders. Their primary role became a stepping stone to priesthood. If they did good enough, they could finally get to an achievable high that they really needed to get to. Also, because of charitable giving and it became a way for people to buy their way into eternity, you didn't need deacon disciple makers anymore when you could buy your way into heaven, right? Like all this is happening in history as deacon ministry begins to lose what it was established for in the first place. Matter of fact, it wasn't until the 1500s that deacons began to function biblically again, and it was through the leadership of a guy by the name of John Calvin. Now, I know John Calvin gets a bad rep sometimes about his theology, and you may differ from some of it, but his practical side to ministry is still something we could learn a ton from. As a matter of fact, our deacons who function well in our church today can be attributed to some of the work that John Calvin helped do as he paved the way for deacon ministry to go back to a biblical standard. Since then, deacons have been known as mercy ministers as they were biblically. Now for Baptists in particular, we have elevated deacons to a board, which has never been their biblical function. Now, listen, I want to put a little note here. I am extremely thankful that this is not the case here at First Baptist, as it has been my experience at other churches in my past. Other churches I've served at, I had to get approval from deacons. I had to get financial stuff from deacons. I had to ask their permit. You know, it was just all the, you got to go before the deacons if you can have anything done in the church. Friends, that's never described of deacon ministry in the Bible. That came from an outside source where man tried to control something that was not theirs to control. Amen? Can I tell you something? We don't do that here. Our men are faithful to serve and love and help 
our community and our families at our church. And I'm extremely, extremely thankful. As a matter of fact, if you are a deacon in this church, whether active or not active, just know from me, I, I thank you and I love you and I appreciate you. And I'm, I'm excited that we get to continue to serve together. Now, most Baptists, the good news is, as our church is, are recapturing the biblical person of uh, purpose of deacons who lead, by the way, in various ministries and assist the pastors of the church to carry out God's vision for the church. So obviously, they're extremely needed. Question number three, which is by far the longest question, and we need to hurry up. Who should be a deacon? All right, maybe a little charged discussion here. If you want to kill me, do it later, okay? But let's think about the Bible, and let's have some logical discussions about deacon ministry. You ready? Listen, wipe the slate of deacons in your mind, good or bad, clear it. Let's walk through 1 Timothy chapter 3 together and consider what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy as he described deacons. Now, if you would, look at verses 14 and 15 in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to start there. We're going to reverse it and then come back. Here's what Paul wrote. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know. Now, watch this. You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is possibly the very purpose of the entire letter of 1 Timothy, that they might know how to behave in the household of God. I want to focus on what Paul writes just before these verses as he describes who who should be a deacon based on how we ought to behave in the household of God. So now look, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Let's start there. Now we'll go in order for all of your minds who are like, no, you cannot start at verse 14. All right, go back to verse 8. Paul writes, deacons likewise must be dignified. So let me just quickly answer the question, although we won't do it quickly. Who should be a deacon? Well, Paul lets us in on that. Deacons are people who are dignified. Now we're going to express that. He fleshes that out a little bit better in 1 Timothy chapter 3. By the way, I'm thankful that he does that. I wish he would have did it more, but he does it and we appreciate that, right? Deacons are people who are dignified. Now the word dignified means honorable, worthy of respect, of good character. All the things, by the way, that the early church described of their deacons in Acts chapter 6 verse 3. They're all summed up in this word, dignified. They're all a part of our current deacon manual, by the way. We believe these are serious qualifications of a deacon who would serve here at our church. That they would be honorable, worthy of respect, good character, good repute. The word dignified can also mean majestic or splendid. We do not hold them to the majestic or splendid qualifications, but it can mean that. Um, they're not quite like me, but they'll get there. All right, we're working on it. Now, I find it interesting. I'm kidding, by the way. I find it interesting that Paul opens his discussion of what Timothy should look for in deacons by talking about their character rather than their competence. He doesn't tell Timothy to find skilled deacons who can contribute to church work, all right? It's not that deacons can't, but that's not what he's looking for. He doesn't tell Timothy to find deacons that have a great influence over the community who can sway others to do as the church desires. It's okay if they do, but that's not what he's looking for. He doesn't tell Timothy to find wealthy deacons who can pay for expenses as needed. However, we appreciate when we have wealthy deacons who can pay for whatever as they're needed. By the way, you know who you are, so 
do that more for us. But that's not what Paul asked for in deacon ministry. All three of these, by the way, are guys that I would be looking for if I was trying to find deacons in our church. But he tells Timothy to look for men, not for what they can do, but for who they are. That's why Luke calls these men in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Deacons, by the way, this idea of dignified, are spiritual leaders, not just good people, not just hard workers. I truly believe that you can't be worthy of respect from a local church and full of the spirit and of wisdom without spending time with Jesus daily. They're spiritual leaders. I think these characteristics imply that deacons should be people of the word. Now, this isn't just a good description, by the way, for all of you who are like, yeah, that's how our deacons should be. And you might be looking at one of them. This is not just good qualifications or descriptions, by the way, for deacons. This is good description of what every follower of Jesus should look like. So if you're kind of disconnected tonight, Danny, why are we talking about deacons? I'm not a deacon. Here's why. Those qualifications are good for every person who follows Jesus. So as we walk through some of these things about who should be a deacon, I want you to think not just in terms of a deacon, but I want you to think in terms of your own Life. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start first with the negative side of dignified. These are what we would call the knots of deacon ministry. Still, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. Now watch it. Here's all the knots. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Those are the negative side of dignified. Now what in the world is Paul referencing when he says this? Well, the first one is their words. Deacon's words. They should not be double-tongued. Now, this phrase, double-tongued, refers to being two-faced or hypocritical. It certainly specifically refers to the speech of a deacon, but it comes from two words. One that means insincere, and the other that means talk. Deacons should control their tongues. Now, let me give you a practical reason for this. One of them, you know, at least. The reason why deacons should control their tongues is because deacons will interact with good church members, and deacons will also interact with what we would call, not bad church members, but just church members that aren't as good. All right, we'll soften the blow a little bit for any bad church members. All right, they're going to have communication, conversations with good church members and those who are not quite as good. Some people will just want to stir trouble and get deacons involved in doing the same. By the way, can you, can you relate to this? It's not just deacons. There are people who want to stir up trouble and they want to get you involved in the trouble. This could be someone wanting you to share information that shouldn't be shared outside of, you know, wherever it was said. It could be gossip, spreading negative information among the community. It, whatever the case may be. You might have heard this statement before, but deacons, all followers of Jesus really, should seek to pour water on any fires rather than gasoline. We know that our words can be fuel to a fire more than anything else. So don't put fires out. Don't get them started or fuel them. Here's another statement from Matt Smithhurst in his book, Deacons. Being double-tongued is not a minor flaw or personality quirk. It is a symptom of hypocritical pride. It's consciously saying one thing to one group and then saying or insinuating something else to another group. Matter of fact, R. Kent Hughes wrote this. Flattery, it has been observed, is saying to someone's face what you wouldn't say behind their back. Whereas gossip is saying behind someone's back what you wouldn't say to their face. A dignified person stays away from both. Paul Chappelle, in his book, The Ministry of a Baptist Deacon, wrote these words. Rather than highly esteeming truth, 
It speaks that which is convenient to a given situation. A deacon must be a man of his word, a man who can be trusted with confidential information. By the way, that's all of us who want to follow after Jesus. Let me give you another practical reason why this is important. Because Paul's likely referring to more than simply just talk. He's probably referring to a hypocritical lifestyle that would manifest itself most visibly in what you say. Jesus, by the way, has strong words for hypocrites. Listen to this. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte and when he becomes a proselyte you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Ouch Jesus. I pray that that is none of us. Chuck Swindoll, listen to this. He said, deacons behave the same during the week as they do in church. The truth doesn't change depending upon their audience. Words, deeds, and reality remain in sync. Their words, they are not double-tongued. Hey, friend, are you? Think about that for a moment. Let me show you this one. Second negative is not just their words, but their wants. Or as Paul phrases it, not addicted to much wine. Now this phrase refers to not being devoted to or giving too much attention to specifically alcohol, but probably carries with it because of what alcohol meant for deacons, and we'll go there in a minute, probably is really referring to any controlling substance. The word for addicted means to give something your full devotion. You with me? You are addicted. It has all of you. Now, you don't want anything to have your full devotion other than God. Anytime you're addicted to something, whether alcohol or anything else, you give that addiction control over you, and nothing should control you outside of God. By the way, this is in reference to deacons, but it's really in reference to all of us. Listen once again to what Matt said in his book, Deacons. It's possible, I love this Clarification, by the way. It's possible that Paul included this qualification since the nature of deacon ministry would at times include bringing wine to the sick for medicinal reasons. Now listen, I don't want to harp too much here. I do think, obviously, you should not be addicted to too much wine or anything. But in particular, Paul knew that at that time, deacons would be carrying alcohol for medicinal purposes. You know what happens when you're carrying alcohol for medicinal purposes on long distances and you get a little frustrated or tired or whatever? You might decide to sip on a little bit of it. So he's warning them. Don't let a ministry that you're doing become an addiction in your own life. Now, the purpose of this qualification is that qualified deacons will not be controlled by their appetites or abuse substances. By the way, Paul makes this connection multiple times in the New Testament, not just with alcohol. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything or controlled or addicted. Now listen to his comparison. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Uh oh, you know what he's saying? Don't be addicted to food. Gluttony is a problem. I know. I look in the mirror every day. All right. 
and God will destroy both one and the other. Now watch this. He makes another comparison, not just your appetite for something to eat, but listen to this next appetite. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see it? (laughs) It's weird to call it an appetite, right? But that's what he's talking about. We desire food because our body needs it. It's healthy. It's good. God wired us that way. What do we do? We take something good and we abuse it. We become addicted to something we shouldn't. We could call alcohol that. We could call food that. You figure out the context you're in. It's equally bad. Now, is that not true for sex? God creates something good, beautiful, wired us for it. And then what do we do? We abuse it. We get addicted to it. We break it. He's saying, don't. Don't be controlled or addicted to anything. Now listen, in our qualifications here at First Baptist, here's what uh, that statement looks like for us. Here's what we have in our deacon manual currently. A deacon shall totally abstain from the use of alcoholic beverages and illegal drugs. I'm letting you in, by the way. This is secretive information. You're not a deacon. No, I'm just kidding. Neither shall he engage himself privately or corporately in the sale or distribution of alcoholic beverages and illegal drugs. Now, friends, listen to me. There's nothing wrong with this. This is a good statement, probably a good idea for all of us, not necessarily what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, before you kill me, let me just give you a thought. Here's a proposed change that our deacons are considering for our deacon manual, which, by the way, will also be considered by our church. So don't get freaked out. I just want to help you see some things from Scripture before you do want to kill me one day, and then we'll get to that point. Now, we're updating some of the language as you see it. We're, we certainly agree about the danger of alcohol and the negative effects that it, along with other addictions, can have. However, the Bible, look at 1 Timothy 3 Verse 8, it does not condemn the use of alcohol, only the overuse. And so for me, I want to be consistent with the Bible. So a deacon shall be cautious about the use of alcohol. Paul's clear about that. It is a danger. Though it's not prohibited to consume alcohol, a deacon must be aware of the sin of drunkenness and the risk drinking can have to one's testimony for Christ. Listen, I agree with this wholeheartedly. Maybe for you, you need to totally abstain from alcohol. But it's not a requirement that Paul puts on deacons. So should it be a requirement that we put on deacons? Now, I know you're thinking, Danny, it's just good. It does damage. You don't realize what happened in my past. I tell you, we need to stay away from it. Listen, friend, I agree. There are bad things in our world that if we're not careful with them, they can hurt us. By the way, food is one of those. Sex is one of those. Your phone is one of those. A computer is one of those. Driving your vehicle down there. There's all kinds of things that fit this category. It doesn't mean that they're not good. They're not good when they're abused. So a deacon, as should you, should not abuse alcohol. There are many things in our lives that can become addictive, alcohol included. The deacon, every follower, by the way, of Jesus, must protect themselves from anything that would master them or take control of their lives. Let me show you this last one. The knots, the negatives. Their words, not addicted, not not double-tongued. Their wants, not addicted to much wine. Their wallets, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now that phrase is really just one word in the Greek translation that means being found, being fond, sorry, of dishonest gain. Now obviously there's nothing wrong with money. I particularly like it probably as much as you do. 
But a deacon should never live their life in the pursuit of gaining money at whatever cost. The goal of life is not wealth. By the way, that's not just a deacon. That's all followers of Jesus. In most churches, even at times this one, Deacons are in close contact with the money of the church. Someone who struggles to gain dishonest wealth would be tempted even by the funds of the church. Also, being so concerned with making money would prohibit a deacon from being available to serve. Once again, there's nothing wrong with wealth, but a man who has to spend overtime hours and lives at the office would not have much time to give in service to the local church. Also, there may be one more characteristic of deacons brought out in this phrase that I like. This is from Paul Chappelle, the ministry of a Baptist deacon. This qualification of a deacon would also indicate that they are generous givers. Matthew chapter 6 verse 21 explains, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Financially, investing in the work of the church through tithes and offerings increases one's heartfelt support for the ministries of the church. By the way, that's not just good for a deacon to be a generous tither. That's good for every follower of Jesus. God was generous enough to give us Jesus. What should we give back to him. So we got to go fast. The deacon should control his words, his wants, his wallet. All three of these knots pertain to the self-control of the deacon. A man who can't control his desires certainly shouldn't be leading through serving. So ask yourself those same questions, not just of a deacon, but of you. Now let's jump to the positive ones. I'm going to go fast, even though some of these are a little tricky as well. The positive side of dignified or what we might call the not-nots. I don't even know if that's true. I just made it up because I thought it sounded funny. Now, God's clear about how deacons are not to act. He's also clear about how they should act. This is the positive side of dignified. Look at 1 Timothy 3.9. Paul writes, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let's talk about their faith. By the way, once again, not just deacons, but all followers of Jesus. Their faith. Hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience conscience. Many people think that theology and the Bible are for the pastors or the elders more so than for the deacons. Now it's true that the qualifications are different between the two and we respect those. The primary function of teaching and governing fall on elders. However, it's not true to think of deacons as only practical and never theological. Listen to this quote from Paul Chappelle. The deacon who holds the gospel in a pure conscience is a man who has a clear grasp on biblical truth and consistently passes it on to others. Deacons, just as elders, and all Christians for that matter, need to know their Bibles. They need to hold the mystery of the faith. Now the idea of this phrase represents three things that I want you to think about personally. You ready? Do you know the truth? Do you know what's in the Bible? A deacon doesn't have to be the greatest Bible reader in the room, neither do you, but they should certainly spend meaningful time with God and His Word. Do you? Spend meaningful time. Do you know the truth? Do you hold the truth or cling to what you know? Do you actually believe it? Are you ashamed of it? Do you embrace what you know, hold the truth or cling to it? The third one is this. Do you live the truth? That knowledge and embracing of the word should certainly lead to a life lived in submission to it. Do you live what you know? A clear conscience means you have nothing to be embarrassed over because you do your best to live according to what you know. Shouldn't this be true? Not just of deacons, but of all of us. Are you someone who holds to the faith that we have in Jesus? Do you know the gospel message of Jesus? Have you embraced it? Are you living it for others? Listen to this quote. To put it differently, a deacon must be spiritually mature. <laughs> It's pretty simple and basic, right? 
All right, watch this one. 1 Timothy 3.10. Their faithfulness. Certainly their faith. But what about their faithfulness? Paul writes, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their faithfulness tested and proven themselves blameless. Now, this is one of the most difficult qualifications because there's no description of what the testing should be or how long it should last. However, a deacon should be tested and not selected until proven blameless. This is why we have a process here at our church. This is what it looks like. We have a selection process of members who meet the qualifications of a biblical deacon. We have individual meetings with the candidate and our current active deacons. We have an ordination council with other deacons and pastors to question the test or uh, to question and test the candidate to make Make sure that they're blameless or able to serve. Then we ordain them and approve them together as a church. I, I think we do a great job of testing and proving them blameless. If someone isn't living like a deacon before their election, then I certainly don't think they should be a candidate for election in the first place. All right, we got to go fast because this is a big one. And I got maybe five minutes. Let's talk about their family. Look at 1 Timothy 3, 11 through 12. Paul goes on, he says, their wives likewise must be dignified. Same word, right? As the deacon, so is the wife. Not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. Their faith, their faithfulness, their family. The family of a deacon, obviously, as we know, is extremely important to their leadership. This is why Paul instructs Timothy that the wives and children of the deacons are also important. Now listen, I don't want to have a huge discussion about this, and don't worry, this isn't changing in our manual, but I do think it's really interesting to study. The word there in, in verse uh, number 11, their wives likewise must be dignified. The word there is actually not in the Bible. It just says women likewise, must be dignified. Now, if you studied this text greater and interpreted it differently, you might agree or disagree. I'm not saying either one. We'll have that argument later. That women are actually qualified to be deacons. This is called a deaconess. You say, Danny, why would you bring this up? Because I don't know if you know this, but they're found in the Bible. But anyway, we're not talking about that. I just wanted to leave that as a side note for you. Most hold that he's actually talking about the wife of a deacon. Now, why this is tricky is because it's not mentioned for the wife of an elder. Anyway, just an interesting conversation. Nonetheless, the deacon's wife has the same qualifications of the deacon himself. Dignified, not slanders or not double-tongued. Sober-minded or not too much wine. Faithful in all things or hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Same exact things. Now, he also goes on and says, the deacon should be the husband of one wife. All right. Interesting terminology, right? Various translations of the Bible word this verse differently. Each of them, by the way, highlighting a different interpretation of what they believe Paul meant. For instance, some interpret this to mean you must be married in order to be a deacon. So if you're single, you can't be a deacon. You got to be married. Some interpret this to mean that Paul is referring to only having one wife, not many, like the Old Testament when you could be Solomon and have a thousand, right? You can't do that anymore. Some interpret this to mean widowers who have remarried can't serve as deacons because that's another wife, right? So what does that look like? Some interpret this to mean divorce disqualifies someone permanently from serving as a deacon. Now listen, we can discuss this more in our own time as you want to, and we will as a church, but here's our current deacon manual. It says a deacon shall never, 
sorry, a deacon shall not ever have been divorced. That's just a really difficult phrase for me to say anyway. A deacon shall not practice polygamy, obviously. A deacon shall be dedicated to his one wife. I agree, not a womanizer. A deacon shall not be a homosexual. Good with all of those statements. Don't have a major issue there except the very first one. Now you say, Danny, all right, you said alcohol. I don't know that I'm okay with this. And it's okay for you not to be okay with this. Danny's not the end-all, be-all, by the way. I just have the microphone, and I'm the one talking about Scripture. And so I'm sharing with you from my heart, all right? Nothing has changed, but will be proposed, at least I hope. Nothing wrong with this interpretation. We think it could be simplified. Here is the simplified version. A lot different. A deacon shall honor the sanctity of biblical marriage. A deacon shall honor, by the way, every follower of Jesus, shall honor the sanctity of biblical marriage. Now, I know we're running out of time, but I want you to hear this from me. Obviously, I and we as deacons understand the importance of honoring marriage. Like, big deal to God, big deal to us. We're not changing our stance on biblical marriage, polygamy, homosexuality, or anything clearly stated in the Bible. But I do want you to notice this from the qualifications of deacons. Paul doesn't use the word divorce in these qualifications. He does say the husband of one wife, I agree, but there's a clear word for divorce in the New Testament, and it is used by Jesus himself. Paul does not use it. Secondly, Jesus gives, I don't want to say acceptance, that's the wrong word, but he does give some leniency on certain types of divorces, right? Certain things that happen that are outside of your control. Certain things that happened a long time ago. Certain things that happened before you were a Christian. Certain things, all kinds of examples that we could look at. We don't have the time for all of that tonight, but with all of this in mind, we think it will be rare, but possible that someone who has been divorced could still fit the qualifications of a deacon. Now listen to me. This is from one of my favorite commentary writers. His name is John Stott. Let me read to you his words. Paul is excluding all those guilty of married unfaithfulness. Or better, he is making a general and positive stipulation that a candidate for deacon must be faithful to his wife, a man of unquestioned morality, one who is entirely true and faithful to his one and only wife, a man who having contracted a monogamous marriage is faithful to his marriage vows. This explanation seems to fit the context best. Now, Danny, that sounds like anyone divorced shouldn't be a deacon. Let me clarify. Anyone who has been unfaithful to their wife is probably not fit to be a deacon. And this is tricky. Rare, by the way. Maybe never. But I think there are people, even in our current context, that have been here for a long time, that have been tested and proven, though they have something in their past that they wish, too, they could take away people who did not make the decision to get divorced themselves, people that it was outside of their control, people who honored God the best they could through a situation where someone chose something different. Hey, can I just can I remind you of something just briefly? God doesn't force you to follow him. As a matter of fact, if you look at God's record of how many people have followed him and how many people have it, he's, he's losing on the other end. All right. Matter of fact, think about Jesus. 
He had 12 disciples. Not even all of his followers made it all the way through, right? Is that Jesus' fault that Judas betrayed him? Of course not. He can't control that. So here's what I'm telling you. Are they currently and have been faithful to their one and only wife? Not are they divorced, divorced or are they single or widowed, though these are certainly things to think about. However, they should be thought about in the context of faithfulness to God and their spouses over time. The backdrop of this conversation is in the midst of all kinds of sexual immorality. That's a different discussion. Deacons, as it goes back to, should be dignified. Managing their children and their households well. I know we spent a lot of time on the divorce thing, but obviously this is important for a deacon as well. Someone who can't manage his house, how can he serve the local church? I'm with you. Now listen, that doesn't mean someone has a wayward child, they're not a good father, or they didn't manage their house uh, well, right? We don't control the decisions of our kids either. All we can do is point them in the right direction, lead uh, the way that Jesus wants us to lead in our homes, and we trust that he will develop their hearts as we're being faithful to him. So someone who has done everything that they can and now their kid is living in a life of sin should they no longer be a deacon they're not managing their household well friends they they did everything they could i think that's the emphasis that paul is placing here for timothy i think the main purpose of paul's discussion of a deacon's family is to teach us that the best way you can know a servant is by how he is serving at home how can a man serve the church well if he isn't able to serve his family well now let me give you this last one we're done, I promise. Why would anyone want to be a deacon? Danny, that's a whole lot of stuff. Everyone's going to be critical of you. You've got to fit all these little standards. You've got to be perfect, right? Proven, tested, blameless. Danny, that's none of us. I agree. So why would anyone want to do that? Well, look at verse 13. I'm done. For those, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Look at that quote, the bottom of your outline from Matt Smithhurst. Though the call to deacon ministry is not glamorous, the reward is glorious. And so these are just some things for you to think about. Danny, why is any of this relevant to me? Well, obviously because the qualifications of a deacon are also just good things for a Christian to follow. So a good deacon is a faithful Christian, are you? Secondly, who you nominate as a deacon matters. It's not a popularity contest. Uh, consider these qualifications as you pray through the candidates for deacon ministry this year. Also, thirdly, wow, pray and support your deacons. They need you as much as you need them. Listen, this is a heavy topic. It's a lot of things we want to do right in our church. We want to serve the Lord faithfully. We want to be as true to his word as we can. And we want to follow in the direction that Jesus leads. Some of our updates, some of the things we'll be discussing. By the way, we have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with all these questions. We feel like we're moving in the best direction for God to bless and use qualified men to serve here at this church. I will field any questions that you have at any point in time. You come talk to me. At some point, we'll, we'll share the updates to the manual before it's, it's adopted by the deacons. We'll have time to discuss those things. But listen to me. Deacons are so vital and important. I pray that our church will constantly be seeking men who are dignified, qualified by God to serve as officers in this church.